Welcome to Crashing the War Party. For nearly two years now, Dan and I have been bringing you an hour each week of unvarnished news and views about the Washington blob. I'm actually in the center of it, as I have been for the last 20 years in Washington, and can safely say that while most things remain the same, I am encouraged that there are so many more people out there with platforms talking about alternative foreign policy and national security news. Um, and we've, we've tried to showcase these individuals every week on Crashing the War Party, even though we have taken our slings and arrows, especially for vocalizing restraint during the Ukraine war, I believe we've come leaps and bounds in saturating the public square with oppositional, critical, and independent thinking. Today, we will be talking to China-Taiwan expert and journalist Ethan Paul about what has become a new sport in Washington, flinging dripping red meat over the China threat and seeing where it sticks. But before that, let's talk about some of the most crackling headlines this week. And there are a few big ones. Um, one of them that I plucked from the pages uh, was uh, this Israeli drone strike inside Iran, which hit advanced weapons production, advanced weapons production facility um, in, in Iran. And Israel supposedly believes it achieved its goals, though we're not really told what those goals were and what it achieved. The interesting thing about this, Dan, is that the United States, or at least U.S. officials, came out quite quickly to confirm that Israel was behind the attack. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting uh, today being Tuesday uh, that it was the Mossad, the Israel's intelligence agency that was behind it. So um, I find it very interesting uh, that a uh, an attack on a sovereign nation uh, was pretty is has become so normalized if it, if it's involving Iran and Israel. Um, but what do you make of this, and where does this fit into the the, the greater uh, foreign policy, I guess, story, Dan? Sure. So. I read it as basically being a continuation of the sabotage efforts that the Mossad has been doing for the last many years. Uh, of course, they, they attacked the Natanz facility uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, they were behind the assassination of the head of their, the Iranian nuclear program uh, just before that. And so uh, I, I see this as, as an escalation of those same sorts of tactics where they're, they're using, uh, in this case, unmanned aircraft uh, to to carry out their attacks inside Iran, uh, and and essentially the the impunity that they have to do that, both because Iranian defenses are apparently not that great, or they're not good enough to prevent these attacks, uh, and obviously the U.S. isn't going to do anything to uh, rein in the Israelis in uh, in what they're doing, and so uh, I, I expect we're going to keep seeing more of these sorts of attacks. Um, or perhaps you know, increasingly uh, brazen ones, uh, and and the, there is always the possibility that the Iranians will eventually start striking back and retaliating uh, for these attacks on their country, uh, which I mean, luckily for the the wider region, they have not been doing. They have not uh, taken action uh, in response to these earlier attacks outside of their country. What they've done instead is to escalate their own nuclear program and to expand it. And so all of the, the sabotage efforts have effectively backfired. Yeah. If, if, if you think that they're supposed to actually limit the danger from whether it's their nuclear program or their missile program or their drones, uh, it, it has had the opposite effect and it has made 
uh, all of those problems worse than they were before. And so I, uh, I fear that the, the people who are trying to conduct these sabotage operations either don't understand that or they're hoping to goad Iran into a point where they, they can then have a larger conflict. And so that's that's where I'm afraid this is this may be going. Yeah, and the interesting um, analysis that I'm hearing today and even yesterday when this hit the papers was that this was Israel's effort to placate the United States, which is basically pressing them to help out in their strategy in Ukraine and to be more of an assistance in that war. And Israel has said, no, it is not giving any more weapons. It basically doesn't want to piss off Russia because Israel wants to continue striking inside of Syria, where Russia is also deployed. And so there's all sorts of geopolitical considerations here. So what does the, uh, the Israel, does, does it, the Israelis do? They strike out at Iran as a, I want to say symbolic or, or maybe even practical or tactical move to show that they can stop their weapons production. Iran is supposedly giving drones to Russia for its operations in Ukraine. So this is, I guess, Russia, uh, Israel's way of saying, hey, we're helping out. We're helping the, the war effort. So the, and this all follows three high profile trips by the United States to Israel. Uh, Jake Sullivan, national security advisor, Bill Burns, the CIA director, and this week, um, Tony Blinken, uh, the secretary of state. So who knows how much collaboration uh, was involved between the U.S. and Israel as they uh, struck uh, a sovereign nation, the sovereign nation of Iran. Anyway, moving on to the next um, headline. I'm sure everybody's seen this one. Zelensky, president of Ukraine now pushing for F-16s to be sent to Ukraine for their war effort. This is supposedly, according to headlines this week, has split NATO members with um, many of them uh, pushing for the same, including uh, obviously Poland and I believe uh, Latvia. France says that it's it's not averse uh, to sending their F-16s. Supposedly, you know, the U.S. is still drawing a hard line on this with Biden saying no. Um, Dan, is this a, a drumbeat? Uh, are we ready to cross another line here? Well, I, it seems like the, we keep coming back to this over and over again, but it, it still doesn't, it didn't make sense six months or six months ago. It didn't make sense a year ago when people were first demanding that we send advanced fighter jets to Ukraine for, for, for a number of reasons. One is that they're, these are not the kinds of planes that they're trained to fly. So you, you send them F-16s, you're, you're going to have to get them up to speed on how to fly them and fly them in combat. And there, there are only so many of these things going to go around. Uh, and if you if you send them in and then they start getting shot down, you don't have anything to replace them with. Uh, I I don't I don't I don't see how it's actually going to assist them that much practically in the fight, unless they mean to take the fight uh, into Russia. And I don't think that the U.S wants to encourage that. In fact, the U.S. has taken steps to avoid providing them with weapons that can take the fight farther into Russia. So I, I don't see the, the the value in providing them with these weapons, especially when they wouldn't be able to use them for 
probably a year or a year and a half by the you know by the time you actually get people trained to use them. And so it, it seems like it's just demanding more for the sake of demanding more and seeing how much they can get. And, and from their perspective, I understand why they're doing it. They they want to get everything that they can possibly get. But it, it doesn't make sense to just give them whatever's on their wish list. And so I, I commend the Biden administration for holding the line on this one because it, it really doesn't make any sense. And these are these are not cheap planes that can be easily replaced. Uh, if they get if they're destroyed, it's going to be a long time before anything replenishes those supplies. So you you don't want to just throw stuff at this conflict willy nilly without thinking it through. And I I fear. Every time a new system or a new a new piece of equipment is approved to go to Ukraine, that just encourages these demands even more to make even more and more unreasonable requests. And then people will say, well, you you eventually caved on the last one, so why won't you cave on this? Right. And so we, we end up in this, this bad position where somehow holding back extremely sophisticated weapons is somehow failing to provide Ukraine with assistance when they're getting huge, huge amounts of assistance, uh, even without those uh, jets. Exactly. Okay, you got a couple headlines for us. Uh, yeah, so uh, a couple quick ones. Uh, the the most striking one or the most notable one, I think, is this uh, story from BBC. The headline is Secretive Saudi Executions Leave Families in the Dark. Uh, and it relates to a new report by Reprieve and the European Saudi Organization of Human Rights uh, that just came out uh, this uh, this month, talking about uh, the the significant increase in the number of executions by the Saudi government uh, since King Salman and his son, the Crown Prince, uh, have come to power since 2015. Uh, there's been an, an over an 80 percent increase in the number of executions since 2015. Uh, they average over 120 per year. Uh, and and as the story on the BBC explains, these a lot of these executions are the result of a secret process uh, where trial and conviction and execution all take place without the knowledge of the family, uh, and and these people are are simply sent off to be killed uh, with, with nothing approaching anything like due process. Of course, the Saudi justice system has long been uh, an abusive one. Uh, this is this didn't start with the current king and his son, uh, but but Salman and his son have made everything much much worse than it used to be, um, and it, it's worth noting that a lot of these executions uh, are being carried out against people who have simply engaged in political protest, who have done nothing more than speak out or criticize some aspect of government policy, and they're being put to death as terrorists. And so, so the the extremism of the Saudi government on this front is uh, really quite shocking. Uh, it's not really surprising. I mean, and anybody who's been following this for a while knows that executions have ramped up. Uh, there was one day last year in 2022 when they had 81 people killed on the same day. Uh, so it's it's been a, a serious problem. It's getting worse, and uh, and this is what the, the so-called reformer has done uh, to Saudi Arabia. He has made it a much more bloody and violent and repressive place. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if there is anything that lays bare the fraud 
that is the liberal world order that the United States professes to lead. It was that fist bump between Joe Biden and MBS over the summer. I mean, we have been sucking up to Saudi Arabia for the last three or four months because of the oil issue, the fuel issue, inflation, the economy, the, the war in Ukraine. But out of the, out of the other side of our mouth, we are, we are telling the world that we have to mobilize with every fiber that in our international being to save Ukraine from the scourge of evil that is Russia. Now, this is not to say that Russia is great or is a democracy, uh, that they are misunderstood. But if we are going to lay out the world's autocracies, bad guys, evildoers, and separate them from the victims, from the good guys, the white knights, you know, MBS and, and everything that you just said, Dan, basically lays him out as probably one of the worst. And our policies to him are completely opposite than our policies with Moscow. So it's just a disappointment, obviously, um, to hear all of this, but it just, I, it just shows how hypocritical the United States is on, on the world stage. And uh, the, the other headline that I had lined up uh, is a story from the Financial Times uh, talking about the effect of Russia sanctions on Mongolia. Because Mongolia is wedged in between Russia and China. Uh, it has uh, it's obviously limited options in terms of who it can trade with. Uh, because of its geographical location. Uh, and so Russia sanctions have really done a number on Mongolia and have, have done uh, some real harm to their economy. Uh, and and I was interested in this story, both for what it tells us about what's happening in Mongolia and also for what it tells us about how sanctions regimes actually affect not just the targeted countries, but all of the countries that they trade with and all of their neighbors. Uh, because it's often, I think in the way that sanctions are talked about in the U.S., People talk about imposing broad sanctions on a country as though it only affects that country or it only affects their government. And, and of course, we know that broad sanctions affect the population most of all, uh, but it also affects the people in neighboring countries that have, that have done business with that country in the past and whose trade relations are then thrown into a bit of chaos. And so uh, Mongolia, which is heavily dependent on Russia for fuel, uh, now has to deal with uh, problems in terms of getting sufficient fuel. And this is adding to political pressures inside Mongolia. It's making things much harder for their government uh, to manage. And uh, Mongolia, we should add, is is at least formally uh, you know, a, a, a real democratic state. Uh, it's, it's unusual in that part of the world in that it is a democratic state. And it would be uh, a real shame if their country ends up uh, suffering serious political repercussions uh, because of policies over which they have no control. Right. And it just shows how uh, sanctions are not a panacea. And I don't, I think it's going to be some years before we realize um, how maybe misguided they were. Our guest today is Ethan Paul. He's a former reporter for the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, and he was also a research associate and reporter at the Quincy Institute. Welcome to the show. 
Hey, Kelly and Dan, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, so it's great to finally have you on. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed all the stuff that you did when you were uh, writing for uh, Quincy and uh, looking forward to talking about uh, China stuff today. Uh, well, one of the things that I've noticed you've been following very closely lately uh, is the this new select committee on China uh, and its uh, chairman, uh, Mike Gallagher. Uh, and you've been very critical of both, both the committee itself and his agenda. Uh, so, so tell us a bit about that. How dangerous is this new select committee on China and why should Americans be concerned about it? You know, in some respect, uh, I think it's almost a good thing uh, that McCarthy has kind of decided to set up this specific committee on China. Uh, the reason is because if you, you know, go back a couple of years, for many near years now, uh, Republicans in the House and Senate have been quietly embracing this uh, comprehensive legislative agenda uh, on China. If you look at the last two Congresses, there have been hundreds of bills uh, introduced on nearly every aspect of public policy and foreign policy related to China. And when this kind of drip, drip, drip um, in terms of legislative focus is going on, uh, this is not something the media is usually interested in. Uh, and so now that this committee has set up, uh, there's been lots of focus on uh, the agenda specifically, but also what, you know, how the Republican Party itself is starting to uh, transform, uh, you know, its foreign policy focus to be all about China and something that I think will continue probably for decades to come. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we can talk about the specific uh things that the committee is intended to focus on. But really, you know, this is a almost a propaganda platform, something that the Republicans are using to uh, kind of push this agenda on the American people and make clear that this is uh, what they want to do. Now, I think uh, right now uh, the committee hasn't gotten started, hasn't started any of its work yet. Uh, but what you see the Republicans doing is talking about uh, bringing Democrats on board. Uh, no doubt there's been 13 Republicans appointed, including Chairman Gallagher. Um, and there's reportedly a few spots in the committee available for Democrats, uh, but Democrats haven't put uh, any forward yet. And I think this is a really interesting moment, this moment in particular, owing to the committee for the Democratic Party, uh, because now they're kind of faced with a choice of, you know, how does the Democratic Party and, you know, more broadly, uh, restraint-based foreign policy thinkers, how do they want to um, kind of position themselves vis-a-vis -vis, um, this Republican Leviathan on China um, that is growing uh, incredibly rapidly and very strongly? Uh, and I think, uh, you know, there have been some interesting options put on the table, such as, you know, putting on an Asian American on the committee, um, that can, uh, you know, serve as a contrast uh, with the Republicans who are almost all white. Um, but I think this also exposes a re really big problem for the Democratic Party and for restraint, which is that while the Republican Party has been cultivating this comprehensive ideological view and experts uh, who can give voice and backing to this view, the Democratic Party does not have that. 
I mean, I cannot really think of a single Democrat in Congress or the Senate who has made China their singular focus and has a voice on China in the way that Republicans have. And so, you know, this committee gives the Democrats an opportunity. Uh, in fact, one of the first opportunities to really uh, kind of make some of these decisions. Uh, and so I'm, I'm pretty interested to see, you know, where, how that plays out going forward. Sure. And uh, one of the other things we saw recently in the news uh, was a lot of uh, hype, a lot of alarmism coming from some parts of our government about a, a possible Chinese attack in the coming years. Uh, we saw this uh, Air Force General Minahan uh, writing a memo that leaked in which he speculated the U.S. and China would be at war by 2025. Uh, his basis for that was his gut. Uh, and, uh, the new Republican chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall, uh, endorsed his view and said that he thinks that this guy's right. Uh, how concerned are you about this uh, apparent evident, uh, this apparent eagerness for war uh, with China that we're seeing in Washington and in some parts of the military? Sure. So, I mean, Minahan's comment, again, I think it was almost helpful because it was so uh, jarring in the language it used that many people who normally wouldn't comment or care about something like this were like, whoa, like this is something that nor like Americans can read and almost shocks them. Um, but this is, you know, there's been several high level current and former uh, military officials who have made statements like this. And, uh, you know, I think it really speaks to, again, this when I uh, this focus on China is, you know, is being driven, I think, by the Republican Party. But really, this is something that has infected or spread across almost every apparatus of the U.S. government. Uh, including the military. And so Minahan's comments show uh, almost a too honest uh, assessment or view of how many in the government are thinking about this. Uh, and I think what's important to remember is that this kind of alarmism uh, is going on at the State Department, it's going on at the CIA, it's going on at the DOD, it's going on at, in parts of the White House. Uh, and so, I mean, we can talk about the Taiwan issue in particular, uh, but I think uh, it kind of is reflective uh, of a view that many elites have uh, in positions of power. And that is helpful, right? And that is, and I think it's helpful to set the terms of the debate and where uh, things are really at, because... You know, these kind of bureaucratic machinations that are going on in the background, like few people had heard of Minahan before right, this right. memo had come out or really knew about him. And so it's like uh, having this kind of transparency uh, is useful in terms, especially for people interested in restraint. This is useful in terms of building a foundation of where of the things we need to counter and how widespread uh, this movement uh, is becoming. Thanks for coming on, Ethan. Uh, great, great to hear your voice. Um, I have a question. You know, a lot of times I'll hear from people inside the Beltway. They'll say, "Well, the the, the military really doesn't want to go to war with China. They just want to build up and prepare for it. They just want all the money they can possibly get to to build up their assets. You know, their new weapon systems that they want to test. Everything. You know, that it, it is not." really the war itself that they want. Do you get that sense too, or does it not matter? Because if we keep 
building and building and building for war. Might we just get it anyway, whether we want it or not? Sure. So I think, I mean, I tend, compared to people like Gallagher, who, with all due respect, is an Iraq war veteran, uh, I mean, I tend to take the comments by military leaders, uh, you know, such as Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, particularly seriously, because I don't think they want to be, you know, I don't think, I think they take the lives and well-being of their, of uh, people under their command seriously. Um, and so when they say, oh, we, we want to deter China, we don't want to go to war with China, I believe them. But I mean, I think just the entire way we approach uh, the issue of not only just our approach to China, but also specifically our strategic thinking in terms of military issues, I think it is fundamentally a mistake. And, you know, the starting point that 99.9% of foreign policy thinkers in Washington start at uh, when they approach foreign policy questions is uh, the alliance system, right? Like if you read, you know, any analysis, what they'll say is the alliance system uh, has been the foundation of U.S. foreign policy for decades. It is the thing that provides uh, stability in the world, allows trade to happen, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, you know, this is a very American perspective. And I think uh, from, China's perspe- uh, from China's perspective, it looks rather different. I saw this, a quote uh, from uh, the president of the Philippines, where he was saying, someone asked him about uh, the South China Sea and how he thinks about uh, the disputes with China. And he responded this January at Davos. He said, oh, the South China Sea keeps me up at night, keeps me up during the day, keeps me up all the time. This is a huge thing I focus on. And I think uh, the same can be said for China in terms of the U.S. alliance system. I mean, when China looks out at the world, what does it see? It sees a enormous concentration of American military power based in Japan, the Philippines, uh, Australia, Guam, uh, and then, you know, Taiwan is, is a particular case. But uh, to some extent, China looks at the world and sees itself as surrounded by American power, as hemmed in. And in fact, this is an assessment that the White House itself agrees with. Uh, because if you read Rush Doshi's book, who is on the National Security Council, uh, he says that Chinese thinkers for decades have been concerned that America would take this strategic foundation and eventually turn it on China. And, you know, this is a very, to me, this is a very reasonable way for China to look at the world, because if America was in a similar position, we would be very concerned uh, that, you know, for example, our key trade flows could be cut off or leveraged if there were some dispute. And so, you know, Whenever any mainstream thinker thinks about or talks about uh, responding to China's military buildup, the answer they give is, oh, we need to strengthen our alliance systems and strengthen deterrence. But really, this is, to me, is trying to hold down a lid on a kettle, uh, you know, that is just boiling. And uh, I think, you know, Americans have to ask themselves the question of, you know, in 2100, you know, should the United States be the strategic anchor uh, 
providing stability in Asia, especially as economic growth you know, continues to redistribute power to parts of the developing world. And I think, uh, to me, that answer is no. I think it is, uh, I think it's almost inevitable that countries, particularly China and India, uh, will take on the dominant role uh, in their own neighborhood. And so, you know, as long as we resist that question, focus on things like deterrence, uh, it's really fighting a losing battle. Uh, and I think, to me, this is why I'm very concerned about the prospects uh, for eventually this kind of tinderbox to, you know, blow up uh, specifically around issues like Taiwan. Well, let's talk about Taiwan uh, for a second or a minute or whatever. Um, we met, you mentioned the Democrats in, in Congress. I'm concerned uh, looking at what happened with Ukraine when a lot of folks on the left side of the aisle who would have normally been professors of restraint. When Russia invaded Ukraine, they were all out in terms of like a a more aggressive pro-war strategy. Um, They still are. And all of those restraint impulses seem to fall by the wayside. And, And to the extent where, you know, people like us, have been accused of being pro-Putin because we haven't jumped on that bandwagon. Do you get a sense that the same dynamics might be lining up in Taiwan? So if something does happen where China does push for um, uh, reunification through uh, force, that there won't there will there won't be a restraint. Uh, movement on the left among Democrats because they will they will see us as having to jump in to defend Taiwan in in the same vein that we are responsible for Ukraine's defense. Yeah, I think Taiwan, the Taiwan question is the most difficult one uh, for the restraint movement uh, to kind of think about. Um, And like you said, I I think the kind of not just the policy response or the policy debate, but the media onslaught that, you know, to some extent rightfully followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, will be significantly more intense and overwhelming uh, in a Taiwan scenario. And like I was saying earlier, there is just not the democratic brain trust or the left liberal or the restraint brain trust that exists on China questions. And so were there to be some military action taken by China, uh, you know, this would really put uh, people who favor restraint on, you know, their back feet. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I find this incredibly uh, concerning. Uh, you mentioned uh, Rush Doshi's book uh, a little bit earlier, and uh, you reviewed that book uh, for Lawfare, I believe, uh, back in 2021. Uh, in your review, uh, you warned uh, that trying to keep China down and undermine its influence simply will not work and will most likely end in disaster and tragedy. And you, you sort of alluded to that earlier when you were talking about trying to keep the, the lid on the kettle. 
Um, the Biden administration, for its part, seems committed to an anti-China containment strategy. As you said, uh, Doshi is on the National Security Council. Uh, what are the potential pitfalls of what the U.S. is doing now? Well, like I said, uh, you know, the rise of Chinese power, the rise of China on the international stage is, uh, in fact, it's almost an endorsement of American order because, uh, you know, American order provided, from some perspective, provided the stability uh, that allowed uh, economic growth to be redistributed across the world. And so this is kind of, to me, an inevitable uh, an inevitable process. And if you just try to contain Chinese power, and not just in the military realm, which is where I think it's the most dangerous and has the most real-world consequences, but in the economic realm, uh, in the geopolitical realm, in the technological realm, to some extent, in the ideological realm, uh, this is really, again, fighting a battle that uh, is unwinnable. And one reason it's unwinnable is because, you know, for China, this is existential, right? Like China has had a long history of being taken advantage of by Western powers, outside powers. And this is kind of finally China's moment in the sun. And uh, this idea that China is going to have its back against the wall and is going to accept American dominance uh, globally, but especially in its region forever, uh, is incredibly myopic. Uh, and in fact, I think this demonstrates that there is no plan for you know, doing like dealing with these problems. The plan is just to smother the problem. Uh, and, you know, China's not going away anytime soon. Uh, and I think, you know, we have to, unfortunately, we won't be forced to ask these questions until there's a, cr a true crisis, uh, at which point it, it might be too late. Uh, right, and uh, now there there is there are some who will sort of argue the the opposite way that uh, China's rise is now stalling, that China is set to go into decline, and that that's why China is particularly dangerous. That this is the Halbrand's Michael Beckley thesis right, right, right. that China will become more aggressive and lash out uh, because it's going into decline. Uh, what do you make of that thesis? Do you, do you think there's uh, anything? Uh, to that at all, or is this, is this just another kind of uh, threat inflation? I mean, I do think it is for the most part threat inflation. On the other hand, on the other hand, I think it's uh, conceivable uh, that Xi Jinping looks at the world and says, we kind of have a 10, 15, 20-year window to get things right. Uh, you know, for example, if the next 20 years go on and America has dramatically strengthened its alliance system in Asia, has allied, uh, particularly with the Europeans, uh, in terms of, you know, trying to box China out of the global economy and global tech order to some extent, uh, has 
turn Taiwan into an in uninvadable island, an uninvadable porcupine uh, that permanently takes unification off the table uh, from a military perspective, you know, then uh, China might find itself in this kind of subordinate position forever. It might find itself in a hole that it can't dig itself out of. And so, uh, although I, I think, you know, I, I don't trust the intellectual rigor of people like Hal Brands, uh, I do think that, you know, this is a reasonable concern for China and something that might add oomph or drive uh, to its foreign policy. Uh, and, you know, that makes, for me, that makes the next, then the moves that the United States makes in the next 20 years in particular, um, uh, especially important. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I'm afraid we're out of time now, but uh, I want to thank you, uh, I guess, Ethan Paul, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, and uh, very interesting. Uh, thanks for coming on, and we look forward to having you back on in the future. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ethan. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.